All right. Well, we're skipping over our usual Wolfie intro today because I'm not going to try to write uh, dialogue with Christopher Shin in the house. Christopher Shin, an acclaimed playwright on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, he's won an Obie. You've, you've had, by my count, five of your plays have had world premieres at the prestigious Royal, Royal Court Theater in London. Uh, or, or are there more? Are there more than five? Uh, no, there's, there's five, five of the Royal Court, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so you have had the, you're having this incredible career, and you've ha- ha- you're having this incredible life, although, as we will talk about today, it has been a hard life uh, of late in certain ways. Uh, but you really seem to be, just following you on social media, you seem to be enjoying being back on uh, in Hartford. You wrote an essay for The Current about it. You've been having barbecue at Bears. You've been rocking your yard goats swag around town. You're going to be hanging out at the West Hartford Public Library tomorrow night where you claim to have hung out and haunted the shelves uh, years ago, uh, and now you're appearing on the Colin McEnroe Show. What could be more emphatically local than that? Um, so what's going on inside of you? As you prepare to premiere a play at the Harvard Stage Company set in your old hometown, more or less, it's not absolutely you know, uh, emphatically uh, Weathersfield, but um, what's going on inside your head? How are you feeling about your, your old landscapes? You know, it's it is exciting to be back. Uh, you know, there's memories everywhere. It's really on every every street. Uh, you know, it's kind of overwhelming to uh, to be confronted with all of it. You know, I haven't been. I've never lived downtown here, mm-hmm. and I'm staying here while I'm in in, in town uh, in an apartment. And and so there's you know, it's not just kind of driving in the car and having a passing memory, passing a building, passing Civic Center, now the Excel Center, learning the new names of things. Right. Uh, um, so, you know, there's time. There's time for the memories to really unfold. And uh, we were down at the New England Barbecue Championships down by the river the other day. And I thought, I can't remember the last time I was down by the river, uh, you know, with any kind of maturity. I, I think it was when I was a boy watching the fireworks with, with my dad. Very vivid memories. Um, people down there and, and how exciting it was and being on my dad's shoulders and so it's a new class of memory, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, since I've been back and really had time to let the let my psyche go and mm-hmm. let the memories soak in. Uh, you know, obviously there's Annabella Sciorra, Mark Lynn Baker, Matthew Lombardo, you. Weathersfield is kind of the Vienna of American theater in a way. Do you feel as though it gave you an unfair advantage being from Weathersfield? You know, I do remember seeing Mark Lynn Baker's yearbook photo <laughs> And thinking, wow, oh, that's a pretty amazing. Uh, if he can do it, maybe I can do it. So I think, you know, I think it did give me a little advantage to, to see that you could grow up in Weathersfield and, and be on a sitcom. Uh, so, yeah, maybe, maybe it did. Well, you know, I had the feeling, and we'll talk about this later, but from correspondences that you and I had at one point, that um, that – you didn't really look back, at least at certain points in your life, with all that all that much fondness here. That it was, it had seemed, at least from a, at a certain point in your life, kind of a provincial and parochial and possibly even suffocating kind of place. Um, w- was that your feeling? I mean, what was it? How did you feel growing up in Wethersfield? Did you feel as though this place is not a good fit for me? I, I need to be someplace else. By the time I was a teenager, I definitely felt that. You know, it was a very mi- mixed experience. You know, I have a lot of very fond memories of being a boy. Um, you know, many of them were solitary, but you know, there was so much freedom to move around into the woods and ride my bike. And I felt like there was tremendous freedom for my imagination to uh, to take hold and my fantasy life. And all those things are the reason I'm a writer, you know, that I built up that inner world and I think that was not only because of the landscape, but I think we had a wonderful public school system, and I have such fond memories of 
many of my teachers. There was an incredible uh, gifted program at the time. I don't think it's any longer there, which is a shame. But I really felt supported uh, as a creative young person growing up. But I think what then happened was, you know, I was a kind of idiosyncratic lad. And by the time I became a teenager and was in high school and, and saw social roles start to harden in a stereotypical way, I remember very vividly the feeling that I had one of two options. One was to conform and, you know, have a, a social network. Or I could be myself and, and really be isolated and alienated. And it was a hard decision, but I remember making it. I remember thinking, I got to follow you know, who I am, even if that means losing all my friends. And that's pretty much what happened. And it was a, a pretty lonely, miserable period for, for quite a long time. Now, when you talk about that, Joyce, are you talking about, obviously, being a, a gay teenager in early 1990s, I guess it would have been? Or let's see. Yeah, you are born in 75, right? Yeah. Uh, so is that, one of the, is that what you're talking about, or is it also – being idiosyncratic, having a, a fantasy life, thinking about a world you know radically different from the one you were inhabiting, or, or is it all those things? I think it's I think it's both. I think a lot a big part of it was being gay. Uh, nobody was out in my high school. Even looking back, I can imagine that some of the students were were gay, um, mm-hmm. but nobody was out. Everybody was at least pretending to be straight. So that was a big. A big part of things. It was sort of pre-internet. I remember we got America Online in 1993, so I was 18. So, you know, the, the earlier years were, you know, it was you're pretty isolated. You know, I would go to the library, go to the card catalog, look up H, find homosexuality, see if there are any new books since the last time I'd looked. You know, there weren't many options for for really coming out and, uh, and finding a community back then. But I also think I was an idiosyncratic person. You know, I had been really affected by the books I'd read, the plays I'd seen. And I knew you know, pretty early on that you know, I wanted that kind of consciousness. And it just wasn't how people were. You know? So I would read The Sound and the Fury and think, this is, there's something in this speaks to me. Or Streetcar Named Desire, Long Day's Journey and Tonight, these books that really affected me. And I didn't see that world anywhere in my town. Um, and that was hard. And I thought, yeah, I got to get out of here. I got to go someplace where the things that I love, that I respond to, are talked about and thought about and are just a normal part of life. We're talking to Christopher Shin and his newest play, An Opening in Time, will be at the Harvard Stage opening uh, on September 17th. If you want to go to the West Harvard Public Library and go through the card catalog with him and see what new books they've got on homosexuality, uh, you can do that. It's tomorrow night, right? You're doing that. I'm doing, yeah, West Harvard Public Library tomorrow night. So, um, uh, there's so many things I want to ask you about. I'm not, it's a sort of hard, hard to hard to pick one, but I, let's talk a little bit more about um, uh, that notion of wanting to be a playwright. And so, uh, you went to Harvard Stage uh, as uh, a young man, as a as a high schooler. I think um, was there a moment where you were sitting in an audience going, "Wait, wait, that's I, that's what I want to do. I want to make something like that." Did you have an aha moment? I, you know, I actually did have an aha moment. I had seen a number of things. I think the first time my mom took me to Hartford Stage, I think I was 10, saw a Eugene O'Neill play. I was way too young, didn't understand it. But I remember it had a good set, and I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, but I remember the moment where I did become self-aware in an exciting way. It was a, a play called Marisol by Jose Rivera, and I think I was probably 17. I think it was my senior, senior year of high school. And it was a, a play. I, I don't think it went on to 
be, you know, become particularly famous, but it was a play about a woman in the Bronx in New York City, and it had a kind of magical realism element, but it was really a, a play about violence and suffering in a contemporary urban environment. And I'd never seen the real world put on stage before that. I didn't really know you could do that. Mm. And I remember there was a scene in a subway, and the subway was created with you know, very simple props and lighting, uh, some sound effects, and there was a, a homeless man, if I'm remembering correctly, who comes into the subway car, and he's psychotic, and he begins quoting maybe a raging bull or something. And it was just so exciting. You know, I've been on a subway a few times, and I thought, wow, you can write a scene in a subway. You can then put it on a stage, and you can show what life is really like. I had no idea. I thought only movies could do that. So once I saw that and felt the power of that, I thought, wow, this is something. I'd always loved writing. I'd always loved performing. But I think that was one of the first times I thought, okay, these two things can go together, and the th- writing for the theater can be a place where I can really, really express myself. Now, this, uh, the new play is writing for the theater about theater for young people in a way. I mean, one of the uh, things that's happening here, your protagonist is one of your protagonists uh, is a, a drama coach uh, and uh, the high school is doing rent. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of interesting. I mean, here in Connecticut, we've had we had a recent controversy. I know Howard Sherman is listening right now. So uh, Hi, and he, he wants help uh, getting a ticket to the London play, too. Um, uh, but uh, so we had a controversy, as you probably know, in Trumbull, where the high school was going to stage rent and then it wasn't going to stage rent. And the, the notion uh, of, uh, of themes about uh, gay life and AIDS and stuff was suddenly being represented as just too strong a medicine for a high school audience. Is, is that kind of, is, was that part of the choice that you made in this play, that, that a play like Rent is still kind of a battleground for some people? You know, it, it wasn't, it's not a big, the controversy about Rent and is it or is it not appropriate for teenagers is not a huge part of the play. But I think one of the, the things the play is looking at is a kind of blurring of, of uh, city and suburb and, it, you know, without giving too much away, I'll say that there's a, someone who grew up in a city who finds himself living in a suburb. And uh, the, the show speaks to that character in a particularly meaningful way. And it's not apparent initially to the drama teacher uh, in the play that there would be any relevance uh, for, you know, a show about squatters in the East Village in the 90s dealing with poverty and AIDS uh, to kids in the suburbs. So, you know, one of the ways I use that show is to dramatize a kind of uh, a blurring of, of city and suburb in a way that I hope will be provocative for people. We're talking to Christopher Shin. Uh, and uh, as we said, the new play is called An Opening in Time. While you're doing this, you are kind of commuting back and forth uh, to uh, London, right? One of your other plays is, is playing there very soon, if not now. Yeah, I had the first week of rehearsals here in Hartford. Then I went to London for the first week of rehearsals there. And I came back here. And then I'll be going back there. Um, and, and that's Teddy Ferrara. Is that the play that's, that they're doing in London? Yes, a play called Teddy Ferrara, a play that premiered in Chicago in 2013. And that's loosely based on Tyler Clemente, right? Right. It, you know, it tries to use that case, which you know, many of us have some consciousness of, as a kind of jumping off point to explore really desire, I would say. It's a, a play about young desire, first desire, first love, uh, in the context of LGBTQ youth and uh, and particularly the issues around bullying, homophobia, transphobia uh, that are a part of, uh, unfortunately, part of the experience of young people uh, who are coming out, coming to discover who they are. 
When you start thinking uh, about characters in, in, in any of these plays, and some of them, many of them have had at least kind of touchstones back in the real world, back in topicality, back in news. Obviously, you think about all the players and all the stakeholders. And I'm guessing, without being a playwright, without really knowing, I'm guessing that, I don't know, let's say you were writing a play right now with a character kind of like Kim Davis, the famous uh, Kentucky uh, town clerk who won't do marriage licenses, that that it's more exciting and more fun to think about that character's point of view, try to imagine it, try to work it out, try to figure out what its reality is, than maybe somebody who's more like you, maybe more like a gay man who's trying to get his marriage license from that clerk. That going inside the head of somebody really different must be kind of exciting and fun, or, or is it not? Uh, it is exciting, but, you know, more than that, I think it's just the way reality works, which is so interesting. People are different. People have different points of view. But not just that. People have entirely different experiences of reality itself. And that's just how life works. And, you know, I think as a dramatist, I'm fascinated by those clashes, whether they're political and social, like in the Kim Davis case, or uh, intimate relationship where two people have different experiences of the intimacy and the challenges and problems of that relationship. It seems like it's, you know, it's an undying aspect of human life that there's always difference and with difference comes conflict and, and trauma and pain for lots of people. And you know, trying to see is there a way out of the trauma of difference is something that you know, I think it's interesting certainly as a dramatist, but it's also central to my life as a human being because I deal with the same traumas of difference that, that we all do. Um, do you think uh, that uh, you – I don't know. That I read an interview where you were talking about certain actors and you said that Eddie Redmayne, who's been in one of your plays, seems really to be inside a character. You know, He's acting from the inside. Um, do you see, think that when you do that as a writer, you, you're in, you can get inside that person? You can get inside a character who's not like you or are you always seeing in, which I, I think – is a little bit different from being inside. I, th- I think of it like I'm really them, like I'm really inside them. Now, that could be you know, completely delusional, um, you know, and you could argue that we can never really escape uh, our unique specific circumstances. But I think what's so frightening about thinking that way is that, well, if empathy really isn't possible, then all life is is a, is a kind of Darwinian battle to see whose point of view will be stronger and I think that's what leads to violence, ultimately, is you impose your point of view in a violent way, whether, again, it's something political or social or just, you know, in an intimate relationship. So I really, I really hold on to this idea that actually empathy is something that can allow us at least some access to a true understanding of the experience of the other. And, you know, that's why I get, you know, I bristle at the idea that, you know, I have some young friends who are really into social justice movements and uh, you know, they'll say things like, if you are heterosexual, you are homophobic on some level. If you're white, you're racist on some level. If you're cisgender, you're transphobic on some level. And I really, I bristle at that. and it, it annoys me. I, I think it's just a really sad way of looking at reality. And on one level, yeah, I get it. We should always realize that if we have not had direct experience of something, we're going to have to work really, really hard to understand it. But the idea that we start from a place of total non-understanding and, in fact, violence, active violence that we're not aware of, that really bugs me, and I, and I just don't believe that. Do you think you could have a conversation with most people who are really – I mean, if I had Kim Davis in here right now – is that her name, Kim Davis? Kim in here Davis. right now. Uh, could you guys have a conversation? Do you think you could have a conversation with her where you kind of stayed on a pretty even, curious keel? Or, I mean, what other things kind of 
I, cool. I flatter myself that I can talk to anybody. And that may be the narcissistic belief. But uh, as a playwright in particular, I've always wanted to feel like I can talk to anybody. <laughs> now, talking to someone and just learning about them is easy. If there was a lot more at stake in a relationship, if I wanted to get a marriage license from her, I'm sure empathy and understanding would not be the forefront of my mind. But it's my job to be someone who understands other people. So, you know, I've tried really hard to uh, to have a kind of foundational empathy in how I approach pretty much everyone. Right. I mean, if they'll talk to you, you're kind of on the job at that point. You know, they're providing you with with material, with information, and you've got to have information of that kind, emotional, psychological information in order to, to write. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a little break. This is Christopher Shin. He's a playwright. Uh, he's a newest play and opening in time. It will be at the Hartford Stage starting September 17th, which I believe is next week. We're talking to Christopher Shin. Uh, his newest play, An Opening in Time, uh, will be at the Hartford Stage. I'm told it starts on Thursday. Uh, that's what September 17th is. It's going to run through October 11th. Get your tickets now uh, so you won't be shut out. Um, we have so much to talk about. I want to talk uh, about this just terrifying uh, medical experience you had. You had um, a fairly rare and very pernicious uh, form of cancer. It's called Ewing sarcoma. Um and, and it's clear from your writing and some of the interviews that you've given that obviously, in addition to just scaring the living daylights out of you and making you really miserable, do you, do you think it changed you as a writer? Did you wind up thinking about different things as a result? You know, I mean, I can never know because I can't go and live a second life where I never got cancer. Mm. Uh, I, I feel real continuity with who I was before. You know, I, I remember thinking before I got sick, I remember realizing that life was, you know, quite fragile. And I remember thinking, what if I died? What if my therapist died? What if my best friend died? What would that be like? That could happen. That Those sort of things can happen. And I began kind of playing out in my mind these imaginative scenarios of traumatic loss and how would I endure. And, and I feel like that you know prompted some shifts in living. You know, my dad died of leukemia when I was 26. And I think that too, in, in a sense, that was maybe the, the first moment where I really realized, okay, Really bad things can happen. They do happen. They can happen to you. How do I want to live in the face of that? And, you know, I'd always been a pretty serious person, but I, I think that prompted greater seriousness. And I thought, you know, I really want to live a life that I'm proud of and that, where I fulfill what I think I'm capable of. So I think my kind of journey to seriousness, you know, began at that point and, and slowly built up. And, you know, I think getting sick myself just exacerbated it, you know, that became even more important to me. But all the things I was thinking about, I had al- already thought about, you know, it was just, a, a, you know, suddenly the sort of uh, existential dread and uncertainty I had faced previously was now really concrete, really specific, you know, it was no longer abstract. So I, I think the difference was in that way, you know, my thinking went from, you know, abstraction to oh, this is actually my real life. And, and so everything became intensified. What was the worst part of it? That's a really good question. Uh, the simple questions are always <laughs> always the hardest to answer and always the best. The worst part of it. Um, you know, I think what was painful was I, I realized that I couldn't predict people's responses based on what I thought I knew of them. You know, there were people I thought would be really good with my illness and, you know, really be able to face it with me who just weren't, you know, they weren't able to really think about it and, and think 
and feel with me through it. And then there were people who I thought they're going to have a quite a hard time, and they were great. And I, and I thought, wow, you know, my ability to read people is uh, is not as good as I thought it was. Um, and I saw how extreme circumstances reveal people in, in surprising ways, positively and negatively. But I think the negative of that was hard, you know, seeing that there were some intimacies that, uh, you know, closed down and, and shut down in my time of greatest need. Uh, you know, that was probably the hardest thing, you know, apart from just the basic physical suffering, which was, you know, extraordinary and, and, and frightening and difficult. Uh, but, you know, really it was the, the interpersonal level was was the most fraught area, I would say. It's a very revealing answer in a way because the physical stuff, I mean, just from what I've read, I mean, you went through some very extreme chemotherapy. This is not for, not for sissies chemotherapy. You lost part of your leg. So none of that was your answer. The interpersonal part was the answer. I don't know whether that's the playwright talking or just or who you are talking. But it, it's interesting that your thoughts went there, right? Well, you know, my, my psyche never shut down. And I remember uh, dreaming, you know, I remember dreaming very vividly throughout. And I, and I remember thinking, wow, you know, as long as my psyche is, is, is alive, then I'm alive. And, you know, in the, in the deepest sense. But I think what that meant was that even in the midst of, of all that physical pain, you know, the psyche is really concerned, I think, with human love, uh, fundamentally, at least mine is. So, you know, yeah, I was really focused on all my relationships and, and friendships and all my, you know, my existence in a larger community. And, and I think as well, you know, you want to feel when you are, you know, basically living in a, in a hospital or a bed um, and you're pretty much immobile for, you know, long periods of time, you want to feel like your life is continuing in meaningful ways. So I, I think that's also why my, my psyche was more focused on my actual relationships than my actual suffering. It, it sort of makes me think a little bit of Angels in America because, I mean, I think you sort of get that at certain points too, that as horrible as the disease is, the way everybody reacts to the disease in that play is, you know, I mean, it's so front and center particularly for that for that one character. I think that's a great insight about uh, about one of the, the special things about that play. Uh, we're talking to Christopher Shin right now. Uh, you you did lose a part of your leg, and, um, and I, I gather it's made you think a little bit about how people with physical disabilities are, are portrayed in, in culture. Yeah, you know, I'd always, I'd always thought about it because there was a disabled playwright named John Beluso who died, I think, in 2006 or seven, and I'd known him you know, very well. We were good friends, and I had learned a lot about the experience of disability through him. But again, it was uh, something going from being abstract to concrete, you know, when I lost part of my leg, and, and even, you know, before that, when I was in that horrible chemotherapy and, you know, trying to get around, when I'd have to get to the hospital and hail a cab, and, you know, I remember just once he's two women seeing me, I mean, I could barely move. And they basically saw that they could take advantage of, of that and get a cab that uh, was what I was hoping to, to hail. Um, you know, things like that, you know, which are, are pretty unbelievable to see how easily you can be objectified and dehumanized uh, by able-bodied people when you are disabled in some way. So again, the, you know, it went from a kind of abstract understanding and appreciation to a very kind of concrete, specific one. And, yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's something that, you know, someone with at least a little prominence uh, giving oppor- given opportunities to speak about the experience of disability and the importance of really looking at disability and seeing disabled people in a full human way. Uh, and I feel, you know, very lucky to be able to do that. It also, I mean, there's a, it, it unpacks or opens a Pandora's box of all kinds of questions, including, 
you know, I mean, we have conversations all the time about whether cisgender people should be playing trans roles and stuff like that. And, of course, there's this gigantic uh, tradition of able-bodied people playing the roles of people with physical disabilities. I, I don't know. Do you have any reactions on that right now? You know, I just think, you know, people often say it's called acting. You know, that's what they say, mm. which I just find funny. You know, it's like... You know, Mark Wahlberg is somebody who's often cast as aggressive characters. And, you know, you look at his criminal <laughs> record, you see he almost killed a man. You know, actors are always cast based on a personal connection to the material. It's always that way. So you can say, well, it's acting. Oh, yes, it is acting. But acting is based on experience, actual experience, as well as imagination. So I think, you know, that's a silly argument, you know. And, and we, we all know that we value actors having some personal connection to the material most of the time. So I, I think it's really important that you know we continue to advocate for disabled actors playing disabled parts, uh, trans actors playing trans characters. You know, something is gained when you give people the opportunity to play parts where they have a deep personal connection to the material. I don't think you have to make a rule. I don't think it always has to be that way. Eddie Redmayne is able-bodied and was magnificent as Stephen Hawking. There's wonderful performances able-bodied actors give as disabled characters. But fundamentally... You know, it's just undeniable that disabled actors have a particular understanding of disability and that we would all benefit from seeing their understanding and their experience represented through these imaginative scenarios. I I think there's also the question of how how a story gets told, how a story gets told that has disability or some kind of massive medical challenge in it. You know, is it, and I, I think I read an interview where you sort of talked about there are sort of sickness plays and sickness movies, you know. And then then there's just the whole question of, or, or the possibility that um, that a disability is just part of a story, right? That it's, it can just exist within a much larger story, which is kind of more the way it is with life. Um, I don't know. I've become the, you're making me think mentioning Redmayne and Hawking. I've become very close to someone uh, who's got ALS, but it's kind of like her life isn't ALS. Her life is her life. Uh, it would make be, it would be wrong to make a story up about her that was only about ALS. But I think that happens a lot in the way people tell stories. It really does. You know, I I think, you know, we'll know real progress has been made once we start seeing disabled actors playing characters who obviously are disabled if if the disability of the actor is, is visible, when we see them just playing normal people and they're a part of a story that is not focused on their disability or significantly about their disability. That that's when we'll know there's real real progress being made. Because I mean the tradition goes the starts the other way, right? I mean, we don't even know whether Richard III had a hunchback, Richard III had a hunchback, right? It was convenient to tell that story with him being, you know, disfigured basically. Well, you know, I, I think uh, for able-bodied people, disability means something, you know. I, I we can't say globally what it represents, you know, in a universal way, but it has often been used, you know, to represent some kind of moral evil or corruption. Uh, you know, there may be ways that disability makes people think about death in, in ways that, that they're afraid of. So, you know, these tropes find their way into disabled characters, you know, very, very easily. So, you know, again, the more we become conscious of uh, the actual lived experience of disabled people, hopefully these metaphoric ways of looking at disability will start to, to give way to more complex, full human portraits of disabled people. We're talking to Christopher Shin. I'm just reminding you, his uh, new play, An Opening in Time, opens at the Hartford Stage uh, for, starting on September 17th. So you, I read this interview that you did. Um, 
where you said something that I've never, I don't think, heard anybody say before, and I wasn't entirely sure I knew what it meant, but it really intrigued me. I think you said that you you felt you almost had seen in recent years an epidemic of emotional self-censorship, that you thought that playwrights, but not just playwrights, that directors and actors were somehow or other afraid or, or or reticent anyway about expressing deep emotion, about sort of laying out feeling. Can you can you tell me more about that? What did you mean by that? Well, you know, it's always dangerous when, you make, when one makes these you know general pronouncements. Right. Never give interviews is my advice. But. Yeah, I think that's good advice um, because there's always counterexamples, of course. But you know, it was really you know what I said was just based on on personal experience really where it felt to me like, you know, I started in the theater industry in late in the late 90s. 1998 was my first play. And it just felt, my experience was that it was easier to talk about deep emotions uh, with producers, artistic directors, actors, directors, uh, when I was starting out and that it was getting harder and harder. And, uh, you know, I started, you know, just thinking about my life more generally and and it, it felt to me like that really was a trend, that, that there is less appreciation for, uh, you know, really, really deep emotions and, and the complexity of the psyche. Again, there's a million counterexamples, but, uh, you know, that was just something I, I felt. And, um, you know, I felt like I had personal experience of, I think, you know, to be blunt, because I had an easier time getting my plays up uh, in New York in the 90s than I did later on. Uh, or the late 90s and the, the early part of the, the new century. Uh, and I, I was trying to figure out why, you know, and, and it seemed to me that, you know, the work that was, was getting done was, you know, a little cheerier, a little simpler, a little more ironic um, than the work that I was determined to, to continue to do. I was going to ask you, I mean, you sort of answered the question, what, you know, if, if that were true, what took the place of it? So you're saying a kind of glibness, a kind of... Um entertainment without really rigorous self-interrogation lying underneath it. I would say that is true. Again, you know, allowing that there's lots of... Lots of counterexamples. Lots of counterexamples. <laughs> um, you know, look, I, I there were there were plays that, um, you know, I, I feel like in another era, you know, Tony Kushner wrote this remarkable play uh, maybe six, seven years ago now at the public uh, called The Intelligent Homosexuals Guide. It's a long title. I'll, I'll to say the first few words of it, you know, it was an immensely complex play with, you know, just tremendous uh, difficulty in, in interrogating the human psyche. I think fundamentally it was a play about asking the question, is it possible to be intimate with others without exploiting them? Or are we inevitably going to exploit those that we're close to? And, you know, I mean, it was sort of accepted as a play, you know, it was respectfully reviewed, but, you know, it wasn't it didn't capture the attention uh, of uh, New York City the way I thought it, it should have. You know, and that was an example of a play where I felt a healthier culture, a culture that was really going deep and really ask, wanting and willing to ask the tough questions, would have seen a masterpiece in this play and, and would have said, you know, this is something we all need to see and think about and talk about. So, you know, there were things like that where I'd see something very special, very deep, and it wouldn't be received the way I, I would have expected it to and more you know, without naming names, more simplistic work was winning the awards, getting the extensions, going to Broadway. And so, yeah, you know, I think my experience as a theater goer and as an artist was that more difficult things were having a harder time uh, as, as uh, 
as the, the decade wore on. So that raises the question of what you as a playwright want to have happen inside the watcher, inside the audience member. You know, when I walk out of your play, what do you want to have happen when I walk out of this play? I mean, a lot of people... I mean, one of the one of the reasons for the phenomenon that you're describing is a lot of people just want to walk out of a play and think, well, I had a really good time. That was great. You know? I mean, that's, you know, in fact, that probably describes the majority of theater goers. Um, but you want something else to happen, right? So what is that something? You know, I, it's a really tough question. The, the simplest way I can answer it is I want to awaken a feeling in a person that they've never had before and that they, then they have to think about, you know, it can be a good feeling, you know, but if it feels genuinely new, then I think, you know, something got unsettled or woken up in their inner world and it means something has progressed, you know, something has emerged that they can, you know, think about and, and understand themselves more deeply, understand those they love more deeply, think about reality in a new way. But, you know, basically, I feel like, you know, fundamentally, we're limited creatures. We don't know ourselves that well. We don't know others that well. We don't know reality that well. So the point of civilization has to be to learn more. You know, we know this with science, but I think it goes with emotions in our personal lives and human behavior as well. We need to know more about ourselves, those we love, our communities, uh, how we function in the world. So uh, to me, art has to move things forward, ideally, uh, not just distract us or amuse us, but allow us to come to know ourselves better and then be able to apply that greater self-knowledge to our relationships in our world. So yeah, I'm hoping... You know, it may sound a little grandiose, but, I, you know, that's my experience of great art. Something, the, the, what is evoked by the artist awakens something that feels genuinely new, but because it's coming, you know, from you, it's based on who you are. It's based on your inner world. And so you then have to grapple with this new feeling and make greater sense of yourself. So that's what I, I hope to do. I hope to wake something up in someone uh, that then allows them to progress as a human being. That's a great answer. Um, well, uh, we're going to go to a break here, but before we do, I we have to say, I have to say that when you were 24 or 25, you woke something up in me. You really didn't like me growing up. I can, I, You sent me an email when you were a young playwright. Uh, we don't have to go into all the details. It's up online anyway. You can read it there. But a lot of it was just sort of, uh, it was an unbelievable, it was the most devastating email I've ever gotten in my life or letter or anything else because you were so smart about me. You absolutely had located my most deeply buried areas of self-loathing and self-doubt, the kinds of things that I would wake up in the middle of the night asking myself about. And I nobody had else had ever said this stuff to me before. So it was kind of a horrifying moment to read this from this young guy who I'd never heard of before. <laughs> but it was also really interesting. I thought, wow, so somebody gets me. Unfortunately, <laughs> but I'm just, I just I don't want to do a show about me, but I'm just curious to know what, what we've never spoken ever since then. Uh, but um, or even at that time, we didn't get a chance to talk. But what, what did bother you about me? Did I sort of stand for the kind of stifling, suffocating uh, mediocrity of, of Connecticut suburban life in some way? I, you know, I don't know whether to be flattered or horrified by by what you just said. You know, it's it's it, it's very, um, it's a real trip down memory lane. I think in my 20s, I was a bit of a brat or a lot, a, a lot of a brat. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of my insights about others, uh, you know, I came to, uh, you know, 
turn the, the lens on myself. And uh, if it makes you feel any better, it, my self-scrutiny uh, became uh, equally uh, penetrating and you know, difficult and painful uh, in the years that followed. But, um, you know, I, I, I actually was thinking about it, you know, from a really deep point of view, you know, without going into the details about what supposedly I was angry about. But this is what my interpretation, you know, when I was growing up, I think I always associated you with the Hartford Current. I think I didn't understand your writing when I was a boy. And I, so I think I was a little alienated. Like I didn't understand why I didn't understand really what you were writing about. But I also remember I was really um, obsessed with the, at the time, the Hartford Current film and, and theater critic, Malcolm Johnson. <laughs> and I think when I was 12, I wrote him this long letter and I included all these movie reviews I'd written and I sent it to him in the mail and I was really hoping for a response and he never wrote back. And it was, you know, I wrote him a really fawning fan letter and I think I always was really angry about that. So I wonder if the real motivation for attacking you back in the day was I was displacing my rage at Malcolm Johnson, my childhood rage, which had never died, onto you because you were there. You were an easy target. You'd, you know, you'd made a comment in a piece about a, a friend of mine. And so I think, I think actually it had very little to do with you. Uh, I will say that at one point I became sort of the Archie Goodwin to uh, Malcolm Johnson's Nero Wolf. I was probably the kind of person that he would have handed a letter like, do something about this, right back to this kid. But I guess I wasn't there that day. All right, we're talking to Christopher Shin. Um, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. I want to talk uh, particularly about the sort of tradition uh, and the battles that still go on in American theater uh, about censorship. Uh, it's a battle that gets fought a lot and has been fought a lot in the Royal Court Theater where so much of his work gets uh, produced and still gets fought here, too. Uh, we'll have other things to talk about as well, so stay with us. All right, we're back. We're talking to Christopher Shin. I feel like we, did we miss the thank yous? Do we not? We didn't, do we not? We didn't do the thank yous there. Well, I would like to thank everybody associated with this show, <laughs> especially Lydia Brown who helped out producing today, and Kion Wolf who's on the board, and Greg Hill is tweeting for us. By the way, you can tweet uh, to us right now at WNPR Colin. I should have said that a long time ago. Christopher Shin's new play, uh, uh, an opening in time, is opening at the Harvard Stage Company. Um, this is something I know that you is a close to your heart and close to your mind subject. This kind of whole question of, you know, we talked about emotional self censorship in the previous uh, segment, but censorship still goes on, and not just at Trumbull High School over rent, right? There's still battles about what can be staged where, and the Royal Court Theater, where so much of your work has been. Uh, Carol Churchill's Seven Jewish Children had a very very rocky run. New York Theater Workshop, which I'm a big fan of, had you know actually pulled back uh, from a play called My Name is Rachel Corey. I mean, there's still you, you sort of feel like in 2015, what's what's left? What's what's a frontier? What can't you talk about um, except feelings and emotions? Uh, but it turns out there's other stuff you can't talk about, too. And does that surprise you that these battles still go on? Does it, and I assume it bothers you, too. You know, it doesn't surprise me. I, I think, um, you know, because it's the, again, it's the power of the inner world. If, there, if you awaken something in someone that they don't want to be true and real, um, you, usually they have a hard time with it, you know. And, and um, you know, that, that seems to be something that's not changing, unfortunately. So, yeah, intellectually, we all know that censorship is bad and shouldn't happen. But I think emotionally, it, it is, remains too tempting to too many people when something threatening gets woken up inside. So does that put some kind of burden on playwrights, on um, 
and theater companies to to do that work to to I mean I guess I'm asking a pretty obvious question of course it does well look the, the you know there's the emotional level too which I think is more insidious and more subtle where of course we know you know seven Jewish children or Rachel Corey you know often the, the, the rent in a, in, a, in a high school you know the the explicit content of a work is why it ends up uh, running into trouble and difficulty. But, you know, producers are making decisions all the time. And, you know, I think one of the things they think about, maybe the first thing they think about is, will audiences like this? Mm -hmm. And so often what happens is if they think the audience won't like it, they just don't do it. And, you know, where I grew up thinking art, you know, it was the opposite. that If art does something difficult and people won't like it, that's even uh, more reason to do it. And I think one reason I was discovered at the Royal Court is that I think that's more part of their tradition um, that they do work, that they know, you know, some people are not going to like or appreciate. But, you know, there's a subtle, insidious censorship that goes on where we never see the work because someone determines, you know what, you know, this is not going to be appreciated. Our subscribers won't like it. So, that, you know, that happens too. So I think, you know, the censorship question, you know, there's a broad spectrum of censorship and what constitutes censorship and why things are censored and how they're censored. So I think it's a really important, you know, discussion that we continue to have. We should say the, at the Royal Court um, uh, in the 60s, the Lord Chancellor had to sign off on, on uh, British plays. And I know the Royal Court did two incredibly controversial plays that the Royal Chancellor had not licensed, right, uh, at, at their peril. So it's a good place to uh, be thinking about those kinds of questions. But the, you know, the other thing that gets that I think we, th- we thought was, OK, so for there's a lot of reasons why um, certain plays don't get done uh, or don't get done as much. And some of them is maybe some of that's because they're co- too controversial. Sometimes it's because they're too hard. I mean, when uh, when the Hartford Stage Company did Richard Foreman's uh, Pearls for Pigs, uh, it wasn't that it was too controversial that there was anything in it that somebody really objected to. It was just too hard to watch, too difficult to watch. The stage company actually had this rotating gig among their staff called goalie. Uh, and the goalie was the person who had to stand out in the lobby and not stop people from leaving, but just kind of talk to them, interrogate them, find out a little bit you know, about what was bothering them, make them feel as though they were heard. Um, they had community forums and talkbacks to talk about this thing, you know, and and it wasn't because it was about some kind of forbidden content. Content. It was just really hard. But you kind of think, well, isn't regional theater, isn't that where all that stuff was supposed to go once Broadway got to be too expensive a place to do it? Right. Yeah, that was the idea. It hasn't really worked out that way. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, the, the Harvard stage is great and there's great regional theaters all over the country. But, you know, you can't imagine a Hartford Stage or any major regional theater giving Richard Foreman a slot in their season. I mean, it's literally... <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. It's literally unthinkable. That will never happen in our era. So, you know, I, I do think things have gotten harder, and it is sad. You know, I, I think there was a dream that, you know, the regional theater movement could, you know, discover things that were challenging and, and, and bring them to New York, and now it's more like whatever was a hit in New York, you know, finds its way to the regional theaters. So... You know, it hasn't worked out the way some people uh, thought and hoped it would. And, you know, it's making it harder and harder to figure out how you get difficult work in front of an audience in this country. Is London easier? I think it is easier. I think part of it is that there's still, you know, meaningful subsidy. Um, But, you know, the subsidy isn't huge. I mean, I was looking at, uh, you know, some budgets of of theaters and, you know, they're they're still raising private funds. They're making money from ticket sales. So I I think there's a culture there that supports the theater, you know, more robustly. It's part of their daily lives, I think, more than it is uh, 
here for Americans. So I think it's the combination of, of you know cultural pride in doing difficult work, having a tradition of doing difficult work, and you know the, the still meaningful uh, uh, subsidies that uh, that these major companies receive. I just got a tweet. I think it's from Howard Sherman that it was Lord Chamberlain, not the Lord Chancellor. It's the Lord Chancellor's nightmare, maybe, and Gilbert and Sullivan. I don't know. I probably made a mistake there, too. All right. So I'll stop uh, saying those things. So, um, well, I mean, subsidy, subsidy is a double-edged sword, too, right? I mean, the minute there's government money involved, then you have big debates about, you know, Karen Finley or um, Andre Serrano or, you know, and if there's private subsidy involved, if there's anybody involved that's not just the most pure foundation, then you have... A regional theater thinking, well, geez, our underwriters, our funders, you know, are they going to like this? Yeah, you know, I think you know, there's dangers either way. If you have to choose between corporations and government, you know, I would choose government. I think it's probably better. And and I think, you know, again, we it's hard to know how much these funding realities affect programming. But, you know, I have to think that, you know, if you're if insurance companies and, and banks are major funders of your season, it I think it affects, you know, what kind of stuff gets done. And, um, you know, the artist is, is someone who is trying to disrupt society. I hate that word disrupt, but I just used it because it's... <laughs> it used to be an okay word. It used to be. It's overused. I used um, you know, it, the artist is, is trying to wake things up in a way that, you know, is, is uh, frightening and challenging and confusing. And, you know, that, that you know, I think is, uh, is not a corporate value, to put it mildly. Uh, we're talking to Christopher Shin. I should say, today, it turns out September 8th is Transatlantic Playwright Day on the Colin McEnroe Show because last year, exactly on this day, uh, we did an interview with Tom Stoppard down in New Haven. Uh, and now we have Christopher Shin. I don't know who, who well, we have to figure out who we're going to have next year. Um, maybe send in some nominations. Um, you're working on a musical, right? Or you have worked on a musical? Yeah, yeah. I have, yeah. A, have a musical uh, that a wonderful young composer named David Hancock-Turner, wonderful director named Evan Cabinet, who did Teddy Ferrara, The Goodman in Chicago. Uh, we have a, It's a three-person musical. It's very, very intimate. And we're doing a workshop with the new group in New York City in January. And, uh, you know, it's exciting. I, it's about a million miles away from Hamilton. But I'm hoping Hamilton, <laughs> by being somewhat new, is going to open the door for some new kinds of uh, musical because our, our musical certainly, you know, has has some uh, radical elements to it and uh, very, very excited about it. It's about Miller Fillmore and Martin Van Buren. I think we should say that. Um, so um, is it, it's also just, it's a different form, right? Okay, for you, it's a really different form. There's, it's so hard to be naturalistic in a musical, right? People just don't burst into song ordinarily. They don't burst into song ordinarily. Uh, and... Um, Music is so powerful. It's mm-hmm. so emotionally powerful. I mean, when we were starting work on the musical, adding singers and you know, re- hearing real voices do it, I just thought this is this is a whole different thing. There's a sensual reality to it that is just you know not to me. There's no uh, parallel in in straight playwriting. So does it feel like a beast that you can't control? You're you're doing the the spoken word part of this. Yeah, I mean, my job I think is to to find a way to. To control it as as much as you can, you know, uh, you know the emotions are so powerful. So once they're evoked uh, through music in the audience, it's my job to sort of bring them back down to earth and, and contextualize and you know build a structure that will support you know these these uh, you know em- emerging uh, into the depths of emotion that, that music uh, brings the audience. So it's very very challenging. It's very very exciting uh, work, but very different from what I usually do. And it sounds like you liked it, though. I loved it. I mean, I love collaborating. It's why I'm in the theater. I love mm-hmm. working with people. You know, a play is ultimately a problem, you know. 
and uh, there's not an obvious solution. And everybody ideally has to agree on the not obvious solution for the collaboration to go forward successfully. So, you know, you're really, it's just so intimate. You know, you're, you're using all of your brain, all of your soul, all of your heart to try to figure out some aspect of truth that is, you know, fundamentally uh, hard to grasp, if not impossible to grasp. So it's kind of, you know, it's an impossible problem that you s- set out to solve. And, you know, to me, there's no, no more fun than that. <laughs> All right. Here's my concept. I always try to make sure the guest leaves with something, you know, besides what they came in with. Kim Davis, the musical. There, yeah. there you go. You know, because we get first of all, you can work in a kind of Kentucky sound to it, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. it gives you a couple of different musical genres to play around with yeah. a little bit. Uh, and uh, I mean, you have to rush this into production. I mean, nobody's going to remember who she was three years from now. You have the the eleven o'clock number is God's authority. I can <laughs> I can hear it now. Yeah. Who could play Kim Davis though? Who, who's gonna, who could do that role? Oh wow, that's a good question. Because casting, I know I know from reading about you that casting is really important. To oh, you. it's casting is is at least eighty percent of it. Um, oh man, there's no there's no obvious musical theater star, uh, but Laura Venanti can do literally anything. So I'll uh, although she is much prettier, I should add, <laughs> than Kim Davis. I will uh, I'll start there. I think that's a good good place to start. Right, and we uh, our Kim Davis is going to have to be a lot prettier anyway. Of just course, we can't sell tickets. Of know. course. All right, we have to stop right now. Christopher Shin uh, has been great to come in here and talk about so many different things with us. So now it's your turn. It's your turn to go get your tickets. Uh, to the new play and opening in time at the Harvard Stage Company. It starts next Thursday, so I would get on the phone right now.